I want to try, in about the world's fastest wrap-up, I want to finish last week, because I didn't. And then I want to finish tonight. I, I showed the notes and everything to my wife, and we sort of have a wager that I can't do it. That in itself, I think, is godly motive for really making sure. If you can think back to last week, let me just do the, a really, really flying fast recap. We were looking at the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses in Revelation chapter uh, 11. And I made the comment that the measuring of the temple, the separating of the inner court from all that surrounds it, wasn't so much to define size as to separate, delineate the true people of God from all the others. So that just in the same way that you have at the end of the seventh seal, the 144,000, do you remember, who are sealed and separated? And then you have the two witnesses, the, the, the same idea as the church. Where we got that was... They're called candlesticks and olive tree, these two witnesses. And we went back to Zechariah, and it talks about candlesticks and the olive trees. And the candlestick being the, the king, Zerubbabel, olive tree, the priest, Joshua. And I said, I think what you have in the two witnesses isn't two people, but two roles of the people of God. We're a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests unto our God. So we started working our way through all of that. We got to the place at the end of that lesson where you have these two witnesses. They start off so well. If you were looking at Hebrews 11, they have great power and great authority. And yet when you come to the end, um, much in the experience of the church, there'll be persecution and suffering. So that there are these different seasons, different roles We studied that, and then the two witnesses, we didn't study this part. They die, and they come to life. And what I think you have there is a picture of all those in Christ, whether it's during the tribulation, or whether it's old age, or whether it's cancer, or whether it's a car accident, you have death and you have resurrection. And I think all of those fit with that picture of the church as the people of God. You have all these numbers when you come to the end of the chapter, 11th chapter, three and a half days, 42 months, 1260 days. I take that to, to fit in with the idea that, that um, I don't think you should count off the number of days. I don't think it's a literal number of days, a specific time period. But the idea that all the suffering, all the persecution, everything that Christians go through that makes it look like circumstances are defeating them, don't defeat them. There's resurrection, there's life, there's triumph in Christ. That, my friends, is a wrap-up of that 11th chapter. Now we're getting into chapter 12. My opinion is this. Chapter 12, 13, and 14, in the same way that they come roughly in the center of the book of the Revelation, I believe that they, f- they form the center of the book of Revelation. I think if you take 12, 13, and 14, we'll take probably a Sunday night on each of them. They, they look back. They look back to chapters 1 to 11 and recap. They look forward 
to 15 to 22 and reveal what's coming. So they, they form a, a core of the book of Revelation where the meaning of the whole book is explained. When you read the chapter, it's really a perplexing chapter. Revelation 12, 1 to 17, I'm going to read. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. So these visions, he's seeing these visions. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So you've got a clue there. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's strange. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. There that is again. Now war arose. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Here's one place where we know what we're talking about, right? You have this, this very vivid, very clear, it's as though even in this vision, we're meant to capture exactly who this dragon is. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That, I think, you'll see is different from the throwing down in verse 4, if you have the text open in front of you. And I want to tell you what I think the difference there is. 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. He has this understanding. 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Are you confused yet? The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth and then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the land and on the sea. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. What you have is the introduction of the great um, antagonists to the church. 
They give us the reason for all the persecution and trial that the church is going to experience in the last days. Why is all of this happening? Who is behind the devastating events coming upon the earth? What is the nature of the battle the church finds herself and will find herself increasingly in? See, when we read Revelation, most of us, most of us go to the when questions. Love to piece together the sequence, the timing of all the things. But I would submit to you that when you read, especially these central chapters, it's, it's what's happening. It's the meaning of what's happening that concerns the Holy Spirit in the giving of the visions and John in receiving of them. So these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, they contain visions, but they're a little different in that they look, they take us in both directions, time-wise. You'll see. There are visions that stretch back to the creation of the world. Not end-time prophecy. Ancient, ancient history. There are verses that take us back to the birth of Christ. There are visions that take us into future events coming on the earth. And sometimes all those things happen in one vision with no explanation of when everything is taking place. You have to figure it out for yourself. The first and dominant antagonist of the church is introduced in chapter 12, the great red dragon, 12.3. He's, he's called that ancient serpent, verse 9, the devil, Satan. We have that. The second antagonist will come in 13, chapter 13, this beast rising out of the sea. A third antagonist will be introduced in chapter, uh, uh, verse 11 of chapter 13, this great beast rising out of the earth. And then finally, in chapter 14, we're going to be introduced to fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. We'll see about Babylon. So these antagonists, they're introduced in these chapters. First, point number one. You can sense, I want to get through this. The first character is this pregnant woman, one and two of twelve. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, crown of 12 stars, might be significant, the 12. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains and in agony, giving birth. We have a clue who this child is. When born, this child will change everything about world history. There are going to be some wonderful pronouncements about this child's birth and the meaning of his birth. But this child doesn't just come out of nowhere. That's the point of this vision. John sees a woman. She's pregnant. That's where babies come from. This woman clothed with the sun, verse 1, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So this male child, verse 5, he's the dominant theme. Strikingly, not the only child this woman has. I get that in verses 16 and 17. But the earth came up to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to, listen, make more with the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, all of those details help us a little bit in figuring out who this woman is. 
lot of people think the woman is Israel. After all, he's the line of David, the tribe of Judah. That's how the Messiah comes. But I, but I think that while Israel is included, it, it's not just Jews, but, but the church, all the people of God, because it says those who keep, verse 17, the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So I think this woman, this woman is a picture of Old Covenant and New Covenant fulfillment. Like the 144,000, it's a picture of the people of God with the unfolding plan of redemption, starting with Israel and working through to the church, where Paul says we're now one people. Same with the two witnesses, another picture of the church in Jewish context, but fulfilled in the New Testament people of God. I think that's what you see in this woman. Right away, this child is going to have trouble. Point number two. The dragon sets all of his attention and energy on the destruction of the male child of this woman. I see that in 3 and 4 of chapter 12. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, get that picture. He wants to just, wants to pounce on it, eat it up, destroy it. Now, don't get too hung up on every little detail and miss the big picture. The heads, horns, diadems, I believe, are just a, a descriptive picture of the greatness of the power of this dragon. There's a, there's a power structure there. Diadems. Principalities. Powers. So, so we're, we're trying in this vision to see that this is no small enemy. There's, there's great authority. Great power. The dragon is poised to devour this child. And we see John means for us to see the source of every specific attack On the church of Jesus Christ, every mocking, every ridicule, every accusation of intolerance. This dragon is not against religion in general. That's the point. This dragon is looking for the Christ child. That's where the opposition is going to be. Many people see a picture of Satan's fall from heaven with a third of the angels in verse 4. And I think that's entirely possible. Though I don't think it's the same fall from heaven that's described in verses 7 through 9. I'll get to that in just a second. Point number three. The birth of Christ and the protection of the woman are described. I see this in 5 and 6. You still with me? You okay? It's quite a chapter we're trying to plow through here. Five and six, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to, here's an important phrase, rule all the nations with the rod of iron. I'll talk about that in a sec. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Caught up to God and to his throne. Remember that phrase. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. The reason we know 
that this child, the birth of this child is the birth of the Messiah, is the way John and, and, and the pronouncement in this vision, you have an immediate quote from Psalm 2, that messianic psalm. Do you see in Revelation 12, 5, right in the middle, this, this one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron? Psalm 2, that's a messianic psalm. It's about Christ. 8 and 9, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. And so there's this intentional leak now, this link with, with the Messiah. So we know now who this child is, even if we were just had hints before. B, John identifies the means by which the battle in the heavenlies is fought and won. Now, this is really interesting to me. It's in the last part of verse 5. So this, this dragon is waiting there to destroy this Christ child. But her child, it says, was caught up to God and to his throne. So, John sees the, the epicenter of the holy war between Satan, the dragon, and the Messiah. But it's not where you'd expect it to be fought. Even while the battle rages on earth, this is really an important point. In the eyes of the church, the physical eyes of the church, the persecution, the conflict is here on earth. The conflict we experience now and throughout whatever period is left until the second coming. The conflict experienced by the church now and increasingly to the end times is only the is only the visible aftermath of a victory that's already been won. Do you see where it says this child, the last part of verse 5, was caught up to God and to his throne? So this child, the Christ, think about it. Through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, is, is, is now, where is he? Caught up. Caught up to heaven. So through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, Christ reigns now. It's a finished victory now. The war has been won there. What happens here now in terms of the dragon who knows his time is short, who recognizes his own defeat, intensifies his persecution of the church. That's what we experience and will increasingly to the end of the age. But that's not where the ultimate battle is fought. This is the aftermath. Of a victory already won. I think that's a central point here. Colossians 2. 13 through 15. And you. Who were dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt. That stood against us. With its legal demands. This he set aside. Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Put them to open shame. This is the dragon. By triumphing over them. And he's bugged by that. The dragon. And so we sense the intensification of the battle. But it's the aftermath of the battle. 
later on, John will see that Christ's already accomplished victory is the whole reason for the remaining conflict here. If you look at 12.12, Therefore, or, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. So to miss the brief message of that little phrase about Christ on the throne at the end of verse 5 is to miss John's whole point in the next few chapters. Conflict on earth is real, but it's the aftermath of a victory already accomplished. The battle rages here. John takes us right back into it. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. This is the, the church, a picture of the church. Where she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So it's the same idea portrayed in the divine protection over the two witnesses. In chapter 11, this number, 1260, it's used repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation representing a a wrap-up time, the nearness of the end. It's not a long stretch. People of God protected in the wilderness. We'll pick that up again at the end of chapter 12. Point number four. The result of the triumph of the work of Christ on the cross. Look at 7 to 9 now. Do you remember I said that in verse 4, a lot of people see the fall of Satan from heaven with his tail sweeping a third of the stars, this picture of fallen angels and the fall from heaven? Anybody remember that? Then I said, there's another fall talked about in 7 through 9, but I don't think it's talking about the same one. That's the point I want to make here. 7 to 9 of Revelation 12. Now war, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. This is in heaven. Not on earth. And the dragon and his angels fought back. It's a picture, okay? It's not talking about an actual boxing match. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. This isn't falling down. This is kicked out. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him. So if, if, verse 4, his tail sweeps a third of the stars from heaven and they fall down to earth. If that's portraying Satan's original fall from heaven, verse 7 through 9, I don't think describe the same event. So, if they aren't talking about the same event, what do verses 7 and 9 portray? Let me give you my thoughts on those verses. I think the verses speak about a different battle in the heavenly realm than the casting out of Satan and his angels in verse 4. I think the verses describe a real battle and a real victory, but one that's accomplished after and through the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ that was talked about in the last part of verse 5. So I think 7, 8, and 9 describe a salvation victory. I think these verses describe a casting down of Satan that occurred not when he was kicked out of heaven with a third of his angels before creation, but a casting down of Satan as the accuser of the brethren through the victory of the cross of Christ. 
He's triumphed over him. It's the same idea that you saw in 5b, the last part of verse 5. In fact, I think John tells us that this is the victory he's describing in the words that follow immediately after in verse 10. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven, in heaven, saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For, listen, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. It's the ending of Satan's role as the accuser of people like me for my sin and people like you for your sin. That's over. A victory that comes through Christ right now. See it in, in, in verse 10? Now, the salvation and the power of the kingdom. It comes now. John says salvation has come. Why? Because the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Job 1.1, 1, 1. Job 1.11, Job 2.5, Zechariah 3.1. You get these strange passages where it looks like Satan is actively there somehow in the presence of the throne room. I can't explain that to you. And there's this accusing done. John says in, in the last part of verse 10, his, his role is to accuse them day and night before our God. Those are hard words to explain. He accuses me and you before God. And here's John's wonderful point in these verses. That work, that work, that satanic work of the devil, that dragon, as accusing men and women before God, it ended with Christ's victory on the cross, with his resurrection, with his ascension. He stands in perfect righteousness on my behalf, accusations have no place anymore. It's, it's Romans 8, 33, 34 in vision form. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Listen, who is at the right hand of God. That's exactly what John sees in his vision. Condemnation is over now. Point number five. The already accomplished victory of Christ is the reason for the intensity of the battle on earth. I get that in verses 11 and 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth. We're still here. O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. He knows his time is short. I I just see two big theological truths here. A. Christians. Us. We demonstrate the victory of Christ in our sufferings in a way we could never demonstrate his victory if all suffering was just removed. Do you remember what the Bible says? You don't get a lot of details. Satan was cast out of heaven and the fallen angels. Do you remember the reason? The Bible says, the Bible says he was lifted up with pride. Pride. 
We don't have a lot of details, but it says that much. And he wanted glory, and he wanted worship. Do you remember he took Jesus up and said, see all this? I'll give you all this. Here's what I really want. And you see his insecurity. Please worship me. Just tell me I'm great. If there's ever a bruised ego, just worship me. He has never lost that love to be worshipped. And that is why, that is why, by the way, he sets churches quarreling over secondary things. How long services are, what kind of clothes people wear, what the worship should be like. He's, he's, he will do anything to distract pure, devoted worship to that child that was born that he wanted to devour so long ago. He hates the worship of Christ, and he will do anything to distract the church from it. Now, the point I'm making here, Christians demonstrate the victory of Christ in their sufferings in a way they never could with their removal. Suppose just for a minute. Look at this messy world. You can't tell me these thoughts never go through your mind. You have a loved one dying of cancer? Do you have non-Christian people who persecute you for different reasons? We don't get much persecution. Maybe ridicule a bit. What if God came and just right tonight destroyed, destroyed principalities, powers, the devil, all his angels? Could God do that if he wanted? How many say he could? How many say he couldn't? All right, it's carried. He can. So why, why would God put us through all of this? Why doesn't he just end? Isn't this the argument from so many people? You believe your God is so good, so loving. Look at the mess we're in. Why doesn't he do something about it? But if God simply wiped out all the devil's work right now, that would only prove that he is more powerful than Satan. And that is not what God is out to prove right now. What he's out to demonstrate right now, through the witness of his church, that's why the the church in Revelation 11 is called those two witnesses, the witnesses. What God wants to make vivid in front of the world right now, through the lives and choices of people like me and people like you, is not only that God is more powerful than Satan, but that he is infinitely more desirable than Satan. And he could never do that just by eliminating all temptation and all opposition. He is going to demonstrate through the testimony of his end-time persecuted church that there is a group of people who treasure Christ as their greatest treasure and love him more than they love their own lives, only not with just talk, but with the laying down of their lives. And all sorts of people are going to watch the end-time church, and they're going to say, what is it that you people have found in Christ that is to be so highly treasured? There's a price for that kind of witness. I said there were two truths in these verses. Here's the second one. The reason Christians are going to be persecuted is they are the 
earthly representatives of Satan's defeat through the cross of Christ. Every Christian who shuns the world, resists persecution, persistently glorifies Christ in an absolutely unwavering way, rubs Satan's nose in their deeper love for Jesus than anything else. And he can't stand that. Point number six. We're going to do it. It's amazing. The protection of the church from Satan's corrupting influence. I see this in 13 through 17, and we'll wrap up. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, so he recognizes there's a losing venture here. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she was to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The, the, the time is running out. It's condensed. It's a finite period of time. It's short. It's going to be wrapped up. 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. It's a picture. That, that Satan will be behind it. It comes out of his mouth, but it's like a torrent. Just sweep away all those pesky people of God who treasure Christ and belittle my reign. Sweep them out of the way. That's the plan. 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. Went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the church is not going to escape persecution, not in a million years. That's not all these verses describe. They describe God's plan to distance the church from the system, the deception, the seduction the distraction of the devil. And she's carried off the church, the woman. She's carried off into the wilderness. Away. Carried away. So the wilderness here represents the opposite of the, the corrupting influence of the world. Under the influence of Satan. So the, the church will be under the protecting aid of the Spirit of God to the exact degree that she maintains her separation from the world. That's what that wilderness represents. And I think there's a temptation here that that John sees in this vision. And we're starting to see the fulfillment of this, I believe. Singers, musicians, come on up and get ready, okay? But keep listening to me just for a sec. I grew up as a kid. And I'm not like the ancient of days. I grew up as a kid in a world where, generally speaking, there was all sorts of sin and decadence and worldliness. But there was a respect for the things of God. When I was growing up, I was thinking about this. When I was growing up... Even in, on the whole street where I lived, when I, would, when I would come home from school or anything I did, when, when I was out on a Sunday, you would never see even non-Christian people. You wouldn't see them like painting their fence. It, it was just the idea that, well, Sunday, 
There was, there was, kind, of a, there was kind of a respect, even if not an acceptance, just kind of an admiration. That has changed to, we are seen as the cause of most of the problems in today's world. We're, we're intolerant. We get called all sorts of things. We're divisive. We're exclusive. Just Jesus? Really? What about all the other religions? You're saying yours is better than everybody else? And what I'm saying is the tone, the tone toward the Christian church is different now. And there's a way that churches have found to ease that. And the way we've discovered you can ease that is by, if you just make some small compromises, you can ease the persecution and the ridicule and the hatred. Like if you can just find ways of adapting to the culture. Maybe there are other ways to be saved too. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe the standards that we talk about in, in morality, maybe, maybe we ought to be embracing more people than we're embracing right now. And if, we just, and if we just ease into these things a bit, the world will like us more. And so you get this caution here. In the last days, the, 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 the protective work of the Spirit of God, I know it's a crazy vision, I get it, but, it's, but, but God will do his best work through the church in terms of her compromise with the persecuting culture if she's the farther she's removed from worldliness i don't mean taken out of the world we have people to touch and minister to but the farther she's removed from a from a worldly mind the more christ will honor and protect and bless her ministry that's what i see in that vision so that temptation to compromise is it's already happening we're already seeing the fulfillment of some of this stuff And that, my friends, is Revelation chapter 12. Let's stand.